The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's nice to be back. I just got back from New Mexico yesterday. I've been gone since February, so it feels good to be home. Nice to see you all. Familiar faces and new faces. So tonight is the fourth in a series of talks on the ten paramis. Um, Parami means perfection. These are beautiful qualities of the mind and heart that emerge as our practice matures. They're faculties that we all have to some degree, and as we cultivate them, they help us move toward freedom and happiness, and then they are themselves the fullest expression of the enlightened mind. So in the past weeks, we've looked at generosity, morality, and renunciation, three of them. And tonight's talk is on wisdom, the fourth parami. And in future weeks, Andrea will be back, and she will continue the series talking about energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. So this makes the set of the ten perfections of mind. Some traditions have six. Our tradition has ten. So it's not to get hung up on the list and think this is the these are the only ones, but this is the list the way we talk about it. So what is wisdom? It's called panya in the Pali language or prajna in Sanskrit. So the prajna paramita is the perfection of wisdom. Wisdom is the deep, intuitive discernment and understanding of how things really are when it's unfiltered by our self-oriented concepts. And it leads naturally to motivations and actions that harmonize with the way things really are. So we probably all hold on to something like this list of ten paramis as ideals in human conduct. So why is it so difficult to manifest these things? Why do we get caught so often in struggle and frustration? We would like to be more generous. We'd like to be truthful. We'd like to to be to have more energy, um, and yet it just it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's very difficult. So according to the Buddha, this is because we have some very deep-seated il- delusions, illusions about the nature of reality. And these are constantly reinforced by the way that we pay attention and relate to experience. So no matter how much we would like to be happy and peaceful and compassionate, these wishes are often in conflict with deeply held but ultimately illusory beliefs. And this conflict expresses itself as emotional energy that comes up and often overwhelms our best intentions and shadows the potential of these paramis. In some ways, you could say that wisdom is the like the linchpin of this list of paramis. Um, we all have these to some degree, and we can consciously cultivate and practice them, and they support each other's development. But it's really the deepening of wisdom and the penetrating and seeing and discerning reality as it really is that finally uproots these basic misconceptions that keep us imprisoned and allows all the paramis to fully flower. The Buddha compares the liberating quality of wisdom to shining a light on what was dark or to a sword that cuts through delusion and frees us from bondage. Freed from the restraining pull and struggle of not seeing clearly, all the other paramis are then freed to blossom. So wisdom is both the guide and the fruit of a deep unfolding transformation of the very structure of our minds and bodies. This practice is not about trying harder in the usual way to just be good. It's about discovering deep insights into the nature of reality that transform our minds and our bodies. As we let in more aspects of the way things really are, we're rewiring our neural network somehow. We're re-sculpting our plastic brains to see the world differently. And we're releasing deeply held concepts and repressed feelings that keep our bodies in tension. So wisdom is a direct, intuitive knowing. 
And although it's not the same as learning information or understanding through reasoning, these other kinds of knowledge are actually needed to cultivate the ground of wisdom. That's where we begin. So our habits of paying attention in unskillful ways, unhelpful ways, they're so strong that until we can see it for ourselves, some of the Buddha's teachings may appear kind of unintuitive. I don't know if you have friends who don't understand why you just come and sit. You know, what do you mean sit? I, 20 years ago, before I saw the light, <laughs> a friend tried to get me to go and sit at, at the Zen Center, and I, I was sit, <laughs> sit. So it, it didn't make any sense to me. And why, why do we want to work with renunciation? Why don't we just want? Why don't we just get all we can out of life? Um, and why pay attention to the breath? What that's sort of boring. So some of these very basic ways of directing our attention need some investigation. So we come and listen to Dharma talks and we read books and we bring questions to our teachers and we get the the instructions pointed out and we reorient the way we pay attention. So the most important reorientation toward wisdom that we need to get through these other kinds of learnings is to begin to discern the difference between thoughts and concepts and the ultimate present moment constantly unfolding reality. Um, It's quite something, the first step, the most important step in developing wisdom, to be able to recognize the difference between the content of our thoughts, ideas, and beliefs about something, and our habits of getting completely involved in internal scenarios about who said what to whom, what's going to happen, what did happen, picturing ourselves off at work arguing with people, that whole state of mind versus the bare attention to what's happening right now in the present. So as we get better at discerning this difference and we direct our attention more and more to the moment-by-moment flow of bodily sensations and sense impressions, thoughts, feelings, memories, images. This is our practice of mindfulness. So I remember a few years ago here, Gil had an evening where he asked, we got in little groups and dyads or something, and he asked people, um, he asked us to tell each other what's happening right now. And then the dyads reported. And it was quite interesting because... Um, quite a few people would say, well, what's happening right now is I'm, I'm going back to grad school, you know, and, and, and then we would say, well, what's happening right now? You know, oh, well, I'm, I'm working on a paper. Well, okay, right now, what's happening? Well, I'm kind of anxious about it. You know, no, well, right now, what's happening? Oh, Oh, right now. Well, I'm sitting here talking to you. Right. You know, it's moving in the right direction. And what's happening right now? And as you bring it down and down and down, well, what's happening right now is that there's a little tightness in the the chest. What's happening right now is a little hiccup in my throat. Okay. What's happening right now? And as you bring it down, the breath begins to become a very interesting object. And there are all sorts of little tingling sensations that you can see. And as you narrow your attention down to each one of those categories, whole worlds of worry and concern temporarily drop away. You know, when you're when you're thinking about your paper, you're not concerned with the wider aspect of graduate school. When you even notice that you're anxious, you're at the moment not worrying about what's in your paper. When you can focus on your breathing, the idea of anxiety is temporarily let go of. So this ability to unfixate which level we're hanging on to. We're not saying, of course, you can't go and forget about the fact that you're in grad school, but you can you can choose wisely or you can let it naturally wisely go to the more detailed level when you're obsessing with some particular worry. And then when you've gathered your equanimity, you can think about something more peacefully. So this quality of Recognizing the difference between these different levels of paying attention is a part of the opening to wisdom. And as you learn to connect in this way more and more, you begin to see through some deeply conditioned but mistaken core beliefs about how things really are.
The Buddha describes three important characteristics of how things really are that are usually hidden or repressed by our way of paying attention. The first of these is called impermanence. The Pali word you might hear is anicca. So this was revealed when we were looking at the ways you can come closer and closer into the present moment. Being in graduate school or being I'm a graduate student that sounds that's a kind of a permanent sounding condition. But if you look at what that is, it's an ever changing flow of activities and going here and there and listening and working and writing. And at each level, as you look, as you lift up the rock and look beneath it, there's more and more ever changing detail of what's going on. When we sit in meditation, one of the first things we need to learn to do is to see through the concept of pain. Pain is a an idea and it has a sort of it inclines the mind to see it as a permanent lasting thing. But if we really look at it, it's this ever-changing play of tingling and pulling and tightening and heat. And when we relate to it on that level, there's only one microsecond at a time of a particular sensation that we that we pay attention to, that we can meet, and the next thing, the next thing. And I don't know how many of you have gotten so that you can work with this pretty well, but it's a whole different experience looking at something on that level from staying, holding on to the idea, this is painful, I can't stand it, it has to stop. So a way that you can practice with developing your ability to recognize impermanence is to really focus on noticing how things end. Noticing beginnings and endings of things. It's particularly interesting to notice the ending of moods and states of mind, the ending of a desire. So if you ever wanted some food and you didn't get it for some reason, stick with it and just notice how that how that ends. Eventually that desire ends. You're not still wanting everything you ever wanted in your life. So there was a point where those things ended. It's very powerful to see that they end naturally without necessarily having to satisfy it. You can watch anger arise and subside. And you can watch Moment to moment, each the end of each breath, the end of each little sound, the end of everything. Everything begins and ends. And it's also important in life to notice impermanence of situations that suddenly change and to notice how much we're clinging to what was. A really trivial example, I, last winter I was walking on the ice and I was going from my mother's house over to the store. I was out in the middle of this parking lot and I suddenly slipped and twisted my ankle really badly. And it occurred to me in that moment, my practice is pretty strong, so I, I, I just went right to, okay, well, here I am. Now what am I going to do? And there was pain, but I was working with the pain in the way I just described. And I began to reflect that, well, okay, a minute ago I had this purpose of going to the store and now I'm here kind of stranded in the middle of this parking lot and that's... It's, a, it's just a small change of conditions. And one way to relate to this is to hang on to, oh, I was, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, I was going to the store. And uh, another way is, well, now what do I do? So, you know, I just stood there on one foot for a minute and noticed a cart a ways away and hobbled over. And it was, it was a minor thing. But it just got me to thinking. I remember a quote from Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the, the leader of the Burmese democracy movement. I wish I had the book, but I, I didn't. I didn't have it, so I can't find the exact quote. But someone was asking her um, a bunch of questions about the past, or how do you feel about this, or do you resent them, or questions like that. And her answer was, "Well, we're just always thinking, what do we do now? And it's always now. What do we do now? This is the situation now. What do we do now? And if you, the more you can keep that, well, now, now here we are. Not oh, if only we could be somewhere else, but now here we are." Now here we are. Now here we are. That's another way of working with the constantly changing circumstances. So these are small examples. Um, but by practicing non-clinging in these small ways, we're preparing our minds to perhaps be less deeply shocked, maybe a little more resilient, when we suddenly have to let go of big things. We lose our life savings, or we lose our health, or we lose our loved ones, or we face losing our own life. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday called Dying with Discernment. I don't know if you saw it, but it was about um, some nuns in a, in a convent who, actually they sold their convent and they moved into a, 
they built for themselves an assisted living facility because the whole order was getting older. And it was just lots of very interesting comments about about dying when you can just accept that as a natural part of life. And the doctors were commenting on how they didn't see much of the why me syndrome and or people who felt, you know, or who were hanging on to the last hope of the last medical miracle or somehow frantically needing more and more and more treatments that they tended to use less drugs and less treatment and they tended to just they didn't go to the hospital. Most of them died in this facility surrounded by their community with just hospice care. So it was it was an inspiring article. So impermanence is the first of these characteristics that we tend to overlook because we live in the world of concepts. The chief concept around which we organize all our experience is the concept of me, of myself. Me, I, and mine. Those are the magnets for our entire conceptual world. This, the characteristic in, in, um, the Buddha's teaching is translated as no self. The word is anatta. It means no atta. And you sort of need to understand what is meant by that. It can sound frightening. No self. What do you mean no self? But atta is a, a Hindu teaching that there is this core of a permanent self that lives on through eternity and is unchanging and has control over what happens to you. And so the Buddhist teaching is that there is no such thing as an unchanging core within us that is the self. There's no little person in the mind that's that's the self that's pulling the levers and making the decisions and doing things. If there were, well, what's in his mind? You know, it's kind of an infinite regress to to see that there is no single thing. Um, it's an abstraction, you know, like we talk about my marriage. What is that? You know, that's 30 years of details, right? Or the storm. We talk about a storm that blew. The storm did a lot of damage. Well, what what storm? I mean, some little particular piece of wind, one piece of hail, one you know, what is the storm exactly? So the self is something like that. It's an abstraction. I remember uh, Buckminster Fuller had a book called I Seem to Be a Verb, right? Uh, we seem to be lots of verbs going all the time. So the practice with the, around the no-self teaching is definitely not to take it on as some kind of belief, like I don't believe in a self, or to try to negate yourself. It's rather to investigate what is this sense of self, it's very powerful to just start to look at what what do I mean when I when I that feeling of me that feeling of I what does that feel like is it always the same I found a very interesting meditation once where I would just see a thought of my mother coming up and then a particular sense of me that was quite different than when a thought of a friend came up or a thought of my job came up and so it became clear to me that there isn't necessarily a me, even the feeling of me, is is quite different in different circumstances. So, and it's not to say that there isn't this sense of continuity. I mean, there there is a sense of connection. You feel like you're the same as you were when you were a baby. But as we all know, there's probably no cells in your body left from even a few years ago, let alone when you are a baby. So the complete system has transformed and regenerated itself. And there are qualities when when we some people hear that teaching and they misunderstand it with respect to the psychological teachings of the need for a healthy ego so forth. So there these these very qualities that we're studying the paramis are strengths that that are compatible with the the understanding of psychology. So things like confidence and integrity and truthfulness, these are qualities that we're cultivating. But we can just recognize, oh, that there's confidence. It doesn't need to be called or thought of as self-confidence, and it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to believing anything in particular about myself, like believing that I'm going to do a perfect job on something or whatnot. It's just, it's a feeling. It's an energetic, uplifting feeling. And it's there due to conditions. 
and it will subside later due to conditions. And there's not some essential thing that needs to feel threatened when it goes away or needs to feel proud when it comes up. So really, it's the teaching that who we are and what everything is, is radically contingent on ever-changing conditions, a product of conditions. If you look at the difference between from an acorn to an oak, it seems like you have two different things. But if you watch it very carefully, you might not be able to spot the exact moment when one turns into the other. It's a continuous process. And if we could look with a, an electron microscope or or a quantum physical theory, we would see that even a rock is constantly changing and has no fixed, stable core. So there is no one with direct control over what happens. It's interesting, if you want to see this, if you if you feel puzzled by this, or you feel that you are, you, you are making, I'm the one who makes decisions, it's interesting to look at how a decision happens. I find this very fascinating. Because... You know, one minute there isn't a decision, and then there is a decision. And you can say, well, I made the decision. Well, okay, but why didn't you make it sooner? You know, why didn't you make it two seconds sooner? (laughs) It's the process that's working itself out and making this decision. And it's very skillful to look at the various mental factors that are competing in making a decision, uh, in a decision-making process. So it's very interesting to to look back on things that have happened that maybe weren't so skillful and say, instead of blaming yourself, there's no little self to blame. You know, you can say, well, anger made that decision, basically, you know, or greed made that decision. That's the factor that was in the ascendancy at the time that that decision was made. And it takes the the guilt and the blame out of it, but it doesn't remove the fact that we can still train the system to make more skillful decisions. So what we want to do is incline, is put wisdom in the driver's seat for decision-making more often. And wisdom is another one of these factors. It's a miraculous ability to discern what is wholesome to do and skillful to do and what isn't. You know, you couldn't invent such a thing you, any more than you could teach a, a blind person to see or teach yourself to have a, a sense that you don't have. You have these senses and these faculties, and wisdom is one of them. And unfortunately, the tendency to anger and hatred and greed, and these are also in there, in the mix of being human. So with less attachment to these swings between pride and shame and between guilt and blame, you know, if it's, you're looking for whose fault is this, is this my fault or his fault? What is that? You know, it's anger's fault. (laughs) You know, that person was angry. I've been angry. I know what that feels like. So we can, it frees us from a lot of pointless finger pointing and either to ourselves or others. And it's much more fruitful to focus on cultivating the wholesome factors. I noticed that I have a, a delusion that is very deeply seated that I need to be managing other people's disagreements. So I'm very uncomfortable when I'm in a situation where other people are disagreeing with each other. And I've noticed that my mind is just jumping to, oh, oh, you know, how can, oh, oh, this person, you know, how can I say something that makes all these people stop being angry with each other? And just taking on this feeling of needing to manage the whole situation. And I was in such a situation recently, and I just really became aware of that feeling that I am in charge of everybody, what they're thinking and what they're doing, and just realizing that I'm not. And tuning into that, I was just able to sit back and feel much more relaxed with a lot of, of anger and ill will floating around among people on a topic that really didn't have much to do with me. And it was quite interesting to just sit back and and see this anxiety for what it was and not feel that I was trying to needed to manage this. There's no point in going looking for an identity. Our culture makes a lot out of identity. You know, buy your identity with a car or clothing or makeup or whatever it is. It's it's actually quite freeing not to have an identity, to go for having less and less of a fixed identity instead of more and more. I noticed I uh I had a funny experience on my recent trip to New Mexico. 
I took, I have a lot of free time there, so I took some a quilt that I've been working on. And everybody says, oh, you're a quilter. And my first thought is, well, no, I've made one and a half tops and I haven't quilted anything yet, you know. I am not a quilter. <laughs> but everybody's introducing, oh, she's a quilter. And, and it's kind of just funny to watch this because I noticed that if I took on that identity, oh, yeah, I'm a quilter. Then right away, well, prove it, you know. I don't know. How do you do it? Well, I don't know how. I don't know. I haven't actually done one, you know. And taking on an identity like that, then I feel like, well, I better go do another one because, you know, I'm a quilter. And But I, I don't know. <laughs> I might not be a quilter. <laughs> I might have just made one. So uh, it's it's just funny to look at what it means to start identifying with something in that way. It's also It's also clear that there's an added pain of identifying and taking things personally. So you can, I'm sure you've all seen this, you're going along absorbed in some task, doing some work for work or something, and suddenly the thought occurs, a little image of yourself giving the presentation or whatever. You know, this might not be good. They might not like it. And and it's when you can put that thought out of your mind that you can get back to work, right, And, and actually engage in the task. So all those little moments of self-referencing, of thinking, what does this mean about me? How, who's, what are they going to think of me? What does it say about me? It keeps this constant jitter going in the attention so that you're spending one second working on the task, one second thinking, what about me? One second working on the task, one second, you know, oh, I'm going to be great. I'm going to, they're going to love it. Oh, no, they're going to hate it. And all that is just a complete waste of energy. And it's how we spend so much of our time. So it's very useful to watch how the mind does that and just start to see what's meant by identification and why that's not such a skillful thing as our society would have you think it is. Sometimes it's possible to have the deep, direct understanding that there is no one behind experience to whom experience is happening. It's so deeply ingrained in our minds to think, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm thinking. But you can start describing that to yourself in another way. Next time you notice that you're seeing, instead of, excuse me, instead of saying, I'm seeing, just think, seeing is happening. You aren't doing anything to see. If your eyes are open, you see. You know, if, if your ear is intact and there's a sound, you hear. There is no I who is seeing and hearing. So it can be very helpful to look at the, the way you speak about this to yourself and try putting it in the passive voice. You know, hear, sounds are being heard. Hearing is happening. You can, it can help bring into focus this illusory I that we think is behind experience. Another way to say this is that we are nothing other than exactly what's happening. Moment to moment, things are happening. There's something happening, and there's awareness of what's happening. And the accumulation of those moments over our lifetime is what we mean by us. The miracle of this is that since it takes two sides to have a struggle about something, this non-dual perspective that we are nothing other than our experience is what gives rise to this natural great peace that is the promise of this practice. So the two characteristics that we've talked about are impermanence and not-self. And the third characteristic is called in Pali dukkha. This is a word that's usually translated as suffering, but that's kind of a heavy translation. It's sometimes called stress or dissatisfactoriness. Basically, it's the feeling that results when we act out of repressing or denying the other two characteristics. It's because the world is in this constant state of flow and change, and it's our habit to try to hang on to it. So whenever we're trying to hang on to something, especially around a sense of self, there's some little element of this dukkha feeling in it. It's like going back to my example of working on something and suddenly thinking about what people are going to think of you. That's adding a little dukkha. And even if it was difficult, what you were working on was a really hard math problem or something, and it was hard. 
there's a whole different feeling between something being hard and adding that little, what are they going to think? Or if you're having a physical pain, there's a whole different sensation between being involved in watching those little details and no matter how unpleasant it is and starting to think this should not be happening I have to fix this that that resistance to what's happening is where the dukkha comes into it when we start to work with observing dukkha I was thinking the other day of that phrase the end justifies the means you know I'm sure we could all write little essays on why this makes a bad foreign policy the end justifies the means. But we don't notice that this is our unconscious, innermost domestic policy almost all the time because our minds are almost always on some imaginary end in the future. The future could be five minutes from now, you know, but something I'm going to do. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to be this kind of person. I'm going to do that. And all the energy is contracted around that in a way that we just don't notice because we're so fixated on either the imaginary, I'm going to get rid of this so that this never happens again, or I'm going to hang on to this so that this happens all the time. And and we're not noticing the means to making that happen is actually a form of tension, a form of very great tension for the most part. So we practice really letting in the present time stress that we feel around achieving our imaginary goals. This sounds easy, but it's so profound and so pervasive. I I mean, I've, you know, practiced for years, and I still spend most of my time thinking about what I'm going to do, what's going to happen, trying to figure something out. And then it's, it's, I'm getting better, you know, it's probably every 10 minutes or so that I remember to check in with my body. And inevitably, I have this feeling that all the energy's rushed up to the head. I'm kind of holding my breath. And I'm thinking about something. And and thinking that this is useful. <laughs> and it may be useful to think. I'm not saying we, can, we don't think. But to check in with the body and relax and realize that this tension has built up toward this goal that's out there somewhere or against this thing that's happening and that we can't really stop happening. So the practice of working with dukkha is to keep being aware of what means are we using right now, this very second, for whatever end we have in mind. And there really aren't ends. There are only means. That's the, uh, that's the other piece of wisdom here. So we talked about distinguishing between what's painful and unpleasant and the extra element that the resistance adds to it. And that extra element of resistance is the dukkha. And then the opposite of dukkha is sukha, is happiness. And it's also a very important part of developing wisdom to discover that there is joy in facing the truth. That our minds love to be aware, they love to be connected with our hearts and our bodies and with the present and what's happening. And this is a great feeling of joy that enables us to do difficult things and to bear pain and to bear sorrow and to bear whatever is happening because it's truly joyful to be present more than to be. Something in us knows what's happening. So there's an internal struggle between the deep unconscious that always knows what's happening and our more superficial attempts to deny it in some way. So, as you learn to get in touch with this added-on quality of dukkha, you can let it be your wake-up bell to drop into the body and the heart and investigate what's going on right now. So the wisdom parami matures very slowly through our lives and our practice. I, I, you could say there's a top-down way in which we intellectually understand that it's a good idea to do some of these things I've talked about. And then there, that runs into the emotional stuff that we all have. And it takes a long time for the intellectual understanding to slowly trickle down and, and influence our behavior and influence our emotional conditioning. Sometimes we need to recall mentally what our intellectual understanding is, so that's very useful, in, and it, it provides a context for working with difficult things. Um, 
if you just stay at the intellectual level of thinking about what a good idea this is, then that is not wisdom. That's just thinking about wisdom. Um, the other way that wisdom develops is sort of bottom up. You might be out in nature someday. You might purposefully go on a meditation retreat. Put yourself in a situation where you have a, a, a natural breakthrough to a sense of calm and well-being and a, a boundless connection with the world. And then this provides a wonderful touchstone for understanding what's meant by this. You could say that the the uh, that they work together. The the bottom up experiences provide the taste of wisdom, and the top down thinking about it provides the recipe. And you you keep trying to bring the two together more and more often. The main way that wisdom matures is through learning to attend wisely to experience. The American philosopher and, and psychologist William James says each of us literally chooses by his way of attending to things what sort of universe he shall appear to himself to inhabit. So I have listed a few of the transitions I see from our ordinary way of attending to a wiser way of attending. We begin to move from a a solidity of things to more of a consciousness of a flow of things as we move from uh, attention centered around ideas to attention centered around the breath and the body. Ideas are amazingly hard things. It's so funny. They're, They're nothing, but there's nothing harder in the world than two ideas in conflict. If you really start to look at the tension in your mind, believing two contradictory things, Inez has used the word isometric exercise. It's like in the mind, and they're very hard, and it's nothing but two ideas in conflict. Um, So we've talked about that. I think another really important way to cultivate wisdom is to make room for it. It's not that we need to do something. It's that we more we need to not do so much. It's about stopping and making room for silence and for rest. I stumbled onto a little book while I was in New Mexico. It's a wonderful book. It's out of print. It's called The Work of Craft by Carla Needleman. I don't know if any of you know it. It's a very wise little book. And I found this passage in here. She says, Action is all the time swallowing us alive, swallowing up our life. But hidden to us, Every movement is both action and reaction, as in the human body, each movement, even the smallest lift of a finger, involves a set of muscles, one that contracts and one that allows the contraction. The dual nature of action is easily forgotten in every field of life. Man, the maker, appears to have forgotten that all work is half rest. There is a movement and a return, whether in swinging an axe, walking, kicking a potter's wheel, thinking or feeling. Without both, action is frantic and misguided. Movement is tense and unrhythmical. The feelings are excessive, and thought climbs from conclusion to conclusion, building its tower on sand. The common purpose, the relationship between people, the link within a community, has its genesis in this great law of breath, going out and coming in. It is the craft, the skillful means of life. But when I am committed so totally and to the exclusion of everything else, to action and result, to doing, making, building, nothing is connected. I fight myself, grow angry, desperate, even cynical. There seems to be no hope, no meaning. We need to learn not what to do. We need to learn to allow the law of breath to be imminent in our lives. So she has another passage where she talks about letting the weight of each moment fully fall and settle. And I love this image of stopping. It's the most helpful thing to me these days is just to let things come. Whatever is cooking and boiling, let it come to a stop. And then let the next thing arise out of that quiet. Just reintroducing as much as possible that kind of rhythm into your life is allowing space for wisdom to arise. So we find then that our attention is more receptive. 
we're not so much looking for confirmation of our pre-existing views, the endless self-justification monologue that goes on, but instead we're open to seeing with curiosity. Our thoughts are not so much caught up in the future and the past, but they're more where our attention is more in the present, which includes images of memories and imaginings of the future, but we understand that they're, those are present moment unfoldings. There's less looking outside to things and status and other people to give us happiness and more trusting that it's a natural side effect of connecting with the truth of the moment. There's less need for planning and controlling what's going to happen, imagining that you can control through planning what's going to happen in the future, and more of a trust in the means of the moment, that if you're practicing in this moment the skillful means of relaxing and paying attention, that that will serve you better for whatever happens in the future than the tight habit of trying to plan what's going to happen. And as we talked about, instead of a fixation on images and ideas of self, We're seeing the arising and passing of mental states, emotions, faculties as being due to conditions. Instead of always asking of every situation, what can I get out of this? What does this mean about me? What does this have to do with me? Instead of that, you're checking, what is my attitude toward what is happening? How present am I? How clear am I with this? Is there clinging? Is there struggling? Is there softness or hardness in relation to what's happening? And finally, there's a transition from being constantly involved and absorbed in the objects of awareness, the content of our thought, what it is we're seeing, what it is we're doing, to keeping an eye on the nature of or the fact of awareness itself. This is a very powerful practice of just, it's like keeping one eye up out of the soup, to just be aware that that awareness is quite a, quite a, It's the mystery of life. What is it to be aware? What is this awareness? And that that everything that's happening is known through this context of, of this mysterious faculty of awareness. So just tuning into that once in a while puts all the rest of what's going on in a different perspective. And eventually we, as we, as our practice deepens, we have a deepening experiential conviction of the truth of the Four Noble Truths. I guess you've all been coming a while, so you know what the Four Noble Truths are. I just want to phrase them again in terms of what it is that we learn that's true. We learn that it's true that there is an underlying stressful quality to much of our the way we relate to experience, to much of our experience, to much of our ways of looking for happiness. And we learn that it's true that this is caused not by inherent properties of people, things, and events, but by how we relate to them through clinging and craving and resistance. And we eventually learn that it's true that it's possible to let go and experience peace and contentment regardless of what's happening. And it's also true that embodying and fully realizing these understandings is a long and cyclical process along the path described by the Buddha. At some point, though, although this is a long path, the wisdom part of me becomes so strong that the sense of walking or being on the path is our greatest source of joy and confidence. We aren't so thrown around so much by what scenery we happen to be passing through as we're on the path, whether it's success or failure, gain or loss, praise or blame, happiness or sorrow, but by how we're working with it and how we're relating to it. I have a wonderful quote I love here from Henry David Thoreau. He says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and to make a few beautiful objects, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day is the highest of arts. So I have a few minutes left, and I just want to talk a little about uh, the relationship between wisdom and compassion. It may seem by some of the words that we use in describing wisdom, seeing impermanent, seeing no self, seeing suffering, that wisdom could lead to a cool and detached and uninvolved view of life. 
but it's part of the amazing truth of how things are that there is no higher form of happiness than working for the benefit of all beings. Once you're free from fear and self-consciousness, this is what naturally blossoms. The equanimity and the unshakable confidence and ease that comes with wisdom opens up into and permeates and really makes possible the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and empathetic joy. Without the equanimity that wisdom brings, well-wishing or loving kindness toward other beings, it tends to turn into carrying a demand that others get happy in the exact way that we imagine for them or on our schedule. And we're more likely to respond out of judgment or frustration or impatience. Compassion without equanimity and insight into the impersonal conditioned nature of things can become the heavy, dutiful, anxious feeling that little little me, I have to make other people happy. I have to fix all the world's problems. Without insight into our own vulnerability in the face of impermanence, we can fearfully and defensively tend to feel more of the condescending pity rather than true compassion. And without the wisdom of knowing that happiness comes from within, we easily succumb to envy and jealousy when other people are happy, feeling that I should be happy for them. But really, we deeply believe that happiness and approval is a kind of zero-sum game. So more for them means less for me if we think it comes from out there somewhere. So wisdom supports the flowering of these beautiful states of mind of metta and compassion and the other paramis of generosity, sila, renunciation, energy, patience, truthfulness, and determination. So I'd like to end with a quote from Albert Einstein, another well-known wise person. A human being is part of a whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So we have a few minutes left if anyone has any comments or questions or experiences with wisdom that you would like to share. Um, yeah, I guess there's a question more t- about um, about practice. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you'd mentioned, uh, talked about sort of sensing pain and, um, mm-hmm. and how it's really how you interact with it and, and how you how you treat it. Um, and I was curious for sort of more of a, I guess more of an unpleasant sensation, and it's more, I guess, chronic than, say, just, um, you can't just sit there and watch it be there and fade. And mm-hmm. I was curious what sort of relationship you would um, recommend developing with that, you know, because it's, mm-hmm. sometimes it will draw, uh, draw me in more and sort of keep coming back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, not, you know, obviously not to, to fight with that, but. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think for something like that, several things are useful. Um, you can notice that you're not, you don't always need to pay attention to it. You know, you can notice that even that waxes and wanes, and sometimes your attention is on it. Sometimes your attention can go somewhere else. You can use it when you have the energy and the sort of freshness to be there with it. You can use that as a way to start to look at the identification with it. In what way are you thinking of this as mine? And there's very, very subtle thoughts of, you know, I shouldn't have this chronic condition. I This should not be happening. Or this is mine. I, I told a story once where I experimented with playing with, what if this were not mine? You know, I've, I've thought of, I'm, I'm holding this pain for someone I love or a child or something. Or I'm an impersonal Mars robot, and this is some kind of simulation of what's happening out there. So just playing with ways of seeing, what if this wasn't mine? Does that make any difference? And then you can play with noticing 
that other things are happening at the same time. You know, and the tendency to let that thing come up and take over all of your attention. You can put your attention deliberately on what else is happening or notice that that thing comes in interleaved with other things in your attention. You can use that thing to notice the nature of awareness. So what is it to be, you're you're sitting here and you're knowing this thing. And there is knowing, knowing is happening. This mysterious quality of consciousness is going on. So maybe there's something, I don't know if you relate to that, but maybe there's something in the flavor of that that is a balance to a kind of absorption in this thing itself. And those are some suggestions for when you feel that when you feel that you have the energy to be curious about it and to if you find yourself that it can be exhausting a chronic sort of discomfort. And so it's also fine to just go to the breath, you know, see if you can get more absorbed in the breath as a way of taking a break from it. You know, feel free to move if that helps somewhat with this. So those would be some suggestions. Um, I'm glad this was being recorded tonight so that I can share this with a friend who couldn't be here and also for so that I can review it because this was quite deep and powerful and it's very worthy. Thank you. It's a deep subject. A lifetime of study of these topics. Study and experiencing. Study in the sense of watching, discerning, and feeling. Let's sit for a minute and just recompose ourselves here. Thank you.